Tonight, we celebrate not only Christmas, but we celebrate the Christ in Christmas. And I'm going to be ministering for a few minutes this evening through a message I'm calling Grace Upon Grace. And what I want us to see through the message this evening is this. Grace was never intended to be the backup plan to the law. It's not plan B, folks. Grace is not a substitute teacher. Grace is the teacher. The scriptures tell us that it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to worldliness and ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this life as we wait for his glorious appearing. So grace is really the teacher for us. This is where it begins. This is the foundation of our Christianhood. Nor was grace the spare tire (laughs) when the law went flat. It did. Grace has always been there from the beginning. Grace has always been the Father's heart. The scriptures tell us that out of his fullness, come on, out of his fullness, we have all received, come on, grace upon grace. Grace, out of God's fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Sandwiched between those two pillars, grace and grace, we find that four-letter preposition, upon. Grace upon grace. That preposition upon comes from the Greek word, anti. That word in the Greek literally means because of. Anti means because of. So as you stare at those words on your screen tonight, it literally reads, for out of his fullness we have received grace. Come on, because of grace. Doesn't that make more sense now? We've received grace because God is gracious. Because he's full of grace. Grace upon grace. Isn't that beautiful? There's something very Christmassy about that declaration. Grace upon grace. Nobody earns grace. Nobody earns it. Grace is given, and then grace is received because of grace. If grace could be earned, it would cease to be grace. God is gracious, therefore, do you know what he does? He dispenses grace. He gives us what's inside the shaker, if you will. If you take a salt shaker, it's usually full of salt, right? That's why it's called a salt shaker. And when God shakes his love and his mercy and his grace over us, he can only give us what he has. And he is full of grace. He's full of grace. Grace upon grace. He dispenses grace. To fall from grace refers to the man who uses the law as his substitute teacher. 
In other words, he says, okay, I've got the grace of God and I've got the law, so I can take either one. You know, how many of you know when you were growing up, your teacher was usually in the classroom with you, right? But there were times when you would make it to class and you'd have just a total stranger in there. You realize, my teacher must be sick. I have a substitute. Friends, the law is not the substitute for grace today. It is grace upon grace. It's not grace upon law. It's grace upon grace. The law was rendered unemployed. The law was made obsolete. Are those words in the scriptures? Yes, they're there. Hebrews 8, 13. They're there. The law was made obsolete. You say, when was the law made obsolete? Was it when Jesus was born? Is that when the law was made obsolete? No, it wasn't then. Was it when Jesus died? No, it wasn't then. You say, well, then it must have been when he was buried. No, it wasn't then. It was when he rose from the grave. In that moment, in that twinkling of an eye, the law was made obsolete. We were no longer under a law-based system, a rule-based system. Jesus had come. He had fulfilled the law perfectly. He died. He was buried for three days. He rose again. And when he rose, he began to dispense the new covenant, the grace upon grace. The scriptures tell us that we have but one teacher, the Christ. And it's out of Christ's fullness. Come on. How many of you know Christ is full? He's not empty in any way. He is full. He is overflowing. And the scriptures tell us that it's out of Christ's fullness. It's out of his overflow. It's out of his abundance. Whatever adjective you want to use there, that we have received grace upon grace or grace because of grace. Now, If a man were to ask me to explain my wife, Valerie, I would say to that person, you can't explain Valerie, you have to experience Valerie. You have to experience her, you can't explain her. And the reason we have so much religion, the reason the church is so anemic in her understanding of this grace is because our substitute teachers have put the emphasis on explaining Jesus rather than on experiencing Jesus. See, our message is experience Jesus, have some Jesus, take some Jesus with you. We don't want to just talk about him. We want to bring him up close. We want to bring him up close and personal. Experience Jesus. Know Jesus. Get to know him. To get to know him, sometimes we just have to silence ourselves. And we have to listen for his heart. Does it ring true with the new covenant? Is it laden full of rules and laws and regulations? That's not Jesus speaking to you. He's come to speak grace to us, grace upon grace, or grace because of grace. 
You see, rules can be explained and laws can be demanded, but only relationship can be experienced. Would you agree with that? You can explain a rule. You can demand a law, but you can only experience a relationship. It doesn't work well if you demand a relationship. If you put somebody under the law that you shall, you will. The other day while I was working, I was at work and I heard a man demand an apology from another man. And I said to him, sir, apologies are not demanded. They are graciously given. Now, I have been a believer for just shy of 29 years. And over those three decades, I've been accused, I've been used, I've been refused, and I've been abused. Yet I had never once demanded an apology from anybody. It just doesn't feel right, does it? That you owe me. Now, sometimes our little minds can lose their little doggy brains. They can get a little carried away because you so desire for that situation to be made right. But to demand an apology, no, sir. No, ma'am. Jesus didn't demand an apology from the Pharisees. They were completely wrong. They tried to kill him on multiple occasions. Their doctrine was in the sewer. Yet Jesus never demanded for them to apologize. Jesus didn't demand an apology from Judas. Jesus didn't demand an apology from the Romans. Jesus didn't demand an apology from the Jews. Jesus didn't even demand an apology from Peter, the one who betrayed him with the words, I don't even know the man. Do you remember that story? When he was confronted in the courtyard and they've got Jesus in another space and they said, hey, you look familiar. You were with that Jesus. Your speech betrays you. And Peter said, I don't even know the man. Jesus didn't say, Peter, you owe me an apology. No, didn't do that, did he? Instead, out of Jesus' fullness, from the abundance of his grace upon grace, you know what he did instead? He filled Peter's net 153 large fish. This was a catch, folks. Peter had fished all night long and he had caught nothing. Casting the net, wore his biceps out, dragging in the net, not even a minnow in the net. And Jesus over on the shoreline says, friends, have you caught anything? And they said, no. And there's seven of them in the boat. And Jesus said, cast your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find the fish right there. Now, isn't this funny? Jesus is doing this miracle that John is recording here. Isn't he worthy of an apology first? See, his grace did not stop flowing because Peter's did. Jesus kept dispensing grace because that's all he's got. He can't withhold that. 
and he filled Peter's net with 153, and the Bible even says large fish. It was the catch of the century, if you will. The miracle so impressed the Apostle John that he ended his book with that miracle. John only speaks of eight miracles. That's the eighth miracle. John was saving that to the last because it was such an awesome display of grace. Do you get that? Think about somebody who maybe have betrayed you somewhere in life and you held a grudge against them for a little while. You wouldn't let them off the hook. You couldn't quit thinking about them. They rattled your cage. And then finally, over time, uh, the, the scab falls off and you're able to get on with life and, and then you feel maybe like forgiving them. But no! While the wound was still fresh, Jesus said, hey, I got some fish cooking here. I got some bread baking here, boys. And by the way, I'm going to let you be part of this miracle. Why don't you bring me some of your fish too? He's always drawing us in. Jesus had turned Peter's overwhelm into overflow. I want you to remember that the next time you feel so overwhelmed. You ever feel that way? You just feel overwhelmed like you're getting pressed in from all the sides. Come on, we've all been there. Maybe you were like that and feeling that way one day this week. I know when we get into the holiday seasons, we have more pressure on us to buy the right gifts and to be at the right places at the right time. And so we feel this pressure. And so we all know what it's like to be overwhelmed. And Peter was overwhelmed. That's why he went back to fishing. He knew he had betrayed the Lord. How could God love him in a state like that? And Jesus said, hey, let me turn your overwhelm into overflow. And that's what he wants to do with you and me, us and we, doesn't he? He wants to overflow us with gratitude and abundance. Amen? For 60 years, Years, the Apostle John must have pondered the thought as to which miracle will I end my gospel with? And I can only conclude that John had witnessed no greater display of grace upon grace, grace because of grace, than the restoration of Peter's love and affection for Christ. Love is contagious, folks. Just love somebody sometime. And watch how it comes back to you. Now, some people can't handle it. They get a little weird on you. But deep down inside, the greatest force we've got is God's love. Exercise it. Dispense it. Toss it out there. Let everybody have it everywhere you go. Love. You see, the miracle was not really about the net full of fishes. 
the greater miracle took place in Peter's heart. See, the unseen realm, that's where the greater miracle took place. Peter knew it. The rest of the disciples didn't know it right away, but Peter knew it. How do we know? He didn't even climb back in the boat. He just started swimming to shore. And the Bible says he was like 100 yards from shore. That's the length of a professional football field. That's 300 feet. That's a long ways to swim, friends. And I'll bet you when Peter got to the shore, he was probably breathing hard. Part of it was just from the energy he spent from swimming, but part of it was because his heart was just bursting because Jesus had validated him. Jesus had shown him grace. Jesus had dispensed grace when he didn't deserve it. Isn't that awesome? Think about that for a second. You put your own little spin on that miracle. Run with it. Take it wherever you want to. But let's just let the scripture speak for itself. And I'm telling you, Jesus demanded no apology. He just dispensed grace. That's all he did. So the greater miracle took place in Peter's heart. You see, in the quietness, in the silence of that moment, Peter realized that Jesus loved him unconditionally. Think about that, friends. He loves me unconditionally because Peter had already given Jesus some conditions to distance himself from him, to not love him. People will write you off for far less nowadays, folks. You look at them wrong, and I'm telling you, they will write you off. You are done with them. It's an awesome moment. It's a Kodak moment. It's a beautiful expression of God's heart that Jesus would love him unconditionally. That's the way he loves you and me. He loves us unconditionally. Now, when is the last time you did something that topped what Peter did? Have you ever said, I don't know Jesus. I don't even know the man. I've never been with Jesus. No, you'd never say that. So your little petty stuff that you do here and there, come on, you're growing in this grace upon grace. Just get over it, would you? Get on with life. Receive his unconditional love. Peter knew in that moment, he loves me. There's no, he loves me not. No, he loves me. No, he loves me not. No, he loves me unconditionally. Grace upon grace had not ceased to be faithful even when Peter was faithless. The scriptures tell us when we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. In the same manner, God is not demanding an apology from sinful man. Instead, what did he do? He gave us an innocent lamb. Jesus. He gave us an innocent lamb. 
Jesus never asked anyone to say they're sorry. I don't see that in the Scriptures. He simply invited sinful man to abandon his ways, to abandon himself, if you will, and to follow him, not to a cradle, but to a cross. The cradle can't help you. The cradle can't save you. It's the cross that makes the difference. It's at the cross that sinful man was transformed. The cradle hadn't done it. The cross did it, though. At the cross, grace upon grace is revealed. God invites all humanity to put their trust in the one that is full of grace and truth. Can you just put your faith in grace and truth? What else does he have to do? He's already done everything. Grace and truth are here to validate, to show us what God's love looks like for us. He dispenses these to us. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You don't have to always get the last word. In fact, most time we'd just be better off not to get any words. Just take it on the chin, would you? And then dispense grace. Do it that way. Jesus made no demands. He asked for no apologies. Why? Because Jesus came to offer grace upon grace. Friends, it's the goodness of God, the scriptures tell us. And it's the grace of God. It's the grace upon grace of God that leads us to repentance. Did you notice that? It's not the demand of the apology that makes you change your mind. It's the goodness of God. It's the train that follows his goodness, full of mercy and love. That's what causes a man to change his mind. It's beautiful. But if I had to explain Valerie... <laughs> I can assure you that I would not begin my discourse with details from her childhood, okay? <laughs> Why? Because those details are not relevant to the relationship I have with her. I know several of her childhood details, but if a stranger said, can you explain your wife? I wouldn't go back to when she was five. That wouldn't make any sense. Somebody said, can you show me a picture of your wife? I wouldn't show them a picture when she was 12. It's not relevant to where I'm at in my relationship with her. Nor would her childhood details probably be very important to you, to be honest with you. And so it was with John the Beloved as he wrote what we know as the Gospel of John, the very book that bears his name, he began his book, I love this, with full-grown Jesus. Mature Jesus. 
Not diaper Jesus, full-grown Jesus. Not two-year-old tantrum Jesus. Full-grown Jesus. He begins his book with full-grown Jesus. You see, Matthew and Luke had already written the narrative of the nativity. I'm happy that Jesus was a baby. I love babies. How many of you love babies? Come on. I love kissing their little cheeks. I love making them laugh. I love giving them a little surprise. I love babies. I really do. I celebrate the birth of Jesus. But I'm going to say something that may sound a little strange at first. My hope is not rooted in the birth of Jesus. My hope is found in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's where my hope's at. Jesus' birth, without his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, would make about as much sense as you put in your thermostat on the outside of your home. You know what you would quickly discover? that it's impossible to regulate your comforts and discomforts. There'd be no way to really soothe you. It's in a different kingdom than what you're in. And that's why so many believers are stuck in grind upon grind when they're supposed to be flowing in grace upon grace. But they're grinding They have been taught to grind their own corn. Yeah, we got to grind our own corn. And like Samson's eyes, their ability to see the simplicity of the gospel has been gouged out. And they are left with the empty eye sockets of old covenant ideology. Just empty eye sockets. Empty way of life. The gospel of John reads very different than the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, you know what he does? He brings Jesus up close. Personal. Let me introduce you to my friend. My Savior, my lover, my King, my Lord. Brings him up nice and close. You see, after the crucifixion of Jesus... John had waited 60 years to write his gospel. What? Yes, 60 years. The loveliness of Jesus and the miracles he had performed had been fermenting in John's heart for six decades. What author takes 60 years to write a short book. I'm told that there are some premium instant coffees where coffee connoisseurs almost can't tell the difference. They're so good. And that may be true. But there's no such thing as premium instant wine. Choice wine takes time. But Jesus didn't allow time to be a stumbling block. He had waited 
thousands of years to come. What's a few more days? What's a few more years? And as a man, he still waited another 30 years to begin his ministry. And so the apostle John, who waited only 60 years to write his book, it's no big deal. John understands the fermenting process, you see. See, right out of the gate, the Apostle John introduced Jesus, again, as a man. He tells us why Jesus came, and then he begins to showcase some of the most powerful, wonderful miracles that you do not see in any of the other Gospels. They're beautiful. John wrote his book so that those who would eventually read it would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. John wrote about the preexistence of Jesus. John wrote about the power of Jesus. John wrote about the perfection of Jesus. John wrote about the popularity of Jesus. And John wrote about the persecution of Jesus. John opened his book by declaring the pre-existence of Jesus. He was with God in the beginning. He was there. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, you see these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth into the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. When John began the writing of his book, he reached back to what we know as the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And he borrowed some language from Moses. Moses wrote Genesis. He borrowed some of Moses' language. You see, Genesis begins with the same words that John began with in the beginning. The word beginning comes from the Hebrew word reshith. It means beginning. It means in the beginning. In Hebrew, the word beginning translates as the choice part. It translates as the first fruits, the beginning, the first fruits. And we know that Jesus, the preexistent one, was with God in the beginning Because Jesus is the choice wine, the first fruits of the vine, the first fruits of all creation. John told us that all things were made by him. That's Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. We have a hope the world doesn't understand. We have a hope in the midst of affliction. Yep. We have a hope in the midst of persecution, absolutely. And even when every 
person in here will ultimately face death. We have a hope that the world doesn't have. Not only because of the promises that have been written to us, but because we are convinced that our Father will only meet out, He will only measure out grace upon grace. Or grace because of grace. Jesus is our choice wine. Jesus is our first fruits. He is our reshith. He is our beginning. He is the light that shined in the midst of our darkness. We were all in a dark place at one time, caught up in our sins. Jesus shined that light into the darkness and drew us right out of the darkness. He is the light that shines in the darkness. Believers are like that preposition upon, U-P-O-N, sandwich between grace and grace. Our hope is not merely in the birth of Christ, but rather in his death, burial, and resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 22, we find these words. Look what he says. But now is Christ risen from the dead, yes, and become the first fruits. There it is. Christ is the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Isn't that awesome? We're alive in Christ. Friends, we have gained access into this grace upon grace in which we now stand by faith in Jesus. Come on, there's no other way. Faith in his finished work. You see, faith in the cradle without faith in the cross is nothing more than a substitute teacher. Our new beginning, our reshith, our grace upon grace, our grace because of grace is discovered through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the firstfruits of those risen from the dead. As the Old Testament firstfruits symbolized and consecrated the entire harvest that was to follow, Christ's resurrection was the foretaste of the resurrection of all believers yet to come. His resurrection, come on, not his birth. Get that in your heart this evening. His resurrection, not his birth, is our assurance that one day, every believer, no one's exempt, all believers will be raised from the dead and we will receive resurrected bodies. I think I got a good body now, folks. It doesn't hold a candle to the one that's coming. Come on. Can I get an amen? Is anybody looking for a new body in this place tonight? Well, you just keep on living long enough. You're going to get it, okay? It's promised in the scriptures, all right? It's coming, folks, all right? It's, it's on the way. The Apostle John capitalized the word word. 
He capitalized the word word three times in his opening sentence. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, what is the rule? What's one of the rules about capitalizing words? We know that a capital word begins every sentence, right? Every new sentence, you use a capital word. Come on, school teachers, help me out here now. Come on. If I get off, you let me know, okay? Because these three mentions of the word do not begin at the beginning of that sentence, there must be another reason why John capitalized that word, word. Well, another rule is we also capitalize all proper nouns. So when we're talking about specific people, specific places, specific organizations, specific things, we capitalize those. I wouldn't write on the computer something about the Eiffel Tower and then use lowercase to write Eiffel and Tower. That wouldn't make sense. That needs to be capitalized, right? Why? Because it's a proper noun. And the reason that the Apostle John capitalized the word word is because he is referring to a specific person. That person, come on, is Jesus Christ. Moreover, John wanted us to know that Jesus was with God in the beginning. That's what he wants us to see. That he's the preexistent one, that he was always with the Father. He is the Reshith. He is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and the last. He is the choice part and the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. He is the ancient of days and the fine wine that was uncorked at the wedding feast. He is the Word made flesh. Jesus was not created by Mary. He was formed in Mary, and he was born of Mary. You see, there's a difference between correlation and causation. Correlation merely points out that two things happened at the same time. But causation indicates that one thing caused another thing to happen. Mary didn't cause Jesus to be born. His manhood was first birthed in the heart of his daddy, in the heart of his father. And then Mary conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you are a farmer. You got your little straw hat on, you got your bibs on, you got your boots on, you got all that, everything's all dusty and dirty. Do you see yourself? You're a farmer. You are deeply troubled because your crops have seen no rain for several weeks and your livelihood depends on your crops, your harvest, a good harvest. And as you walk the perimeter of your fields, you decide to do a little rain dance. Okay, you do your little rain dance. People do this kind of stuff, folks, they do, okay? You got your little rain dance going on, YMCA stuff going on, whatever you got going there. Five minutes after you are done walking the perimeter of your 
field. Now, I want you to imagine with me now that the heavens open and just buckets of rain begin to come. The rain that shouldn't be there. There were no clouds in the sky. Where's this rain coming from? Now, you would make the correlation that your rain dance caused it to rain. But your correlation does not equal causation. Your dance did not cause it to rain. You say, what are you trying to say, Mark? No more than the farmer's rain dance caused it to rain did the purity of Mary's womb cause baby Jesus to be born. Pregnancy required consent. Now, I am not of the inclusion doctrine. The doctrine of inclusion teaches that salvation is unconditional. I'll give you a check mark there. But they also teach that it does not even require faith in Jesus Christ as the payment for man's sin debt. That's inclusion. And there's a growing body of people that are called inclusionists. And they say, it doesn't really matter. God paid for your sins. True. God, Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. But without faith, faith is the currency that we come into a relationship with Christ. He's given us the faith that we have. It's so easy. We just exercise faith, for by grace are you saved through faith. Inclusionism is a perversion of the gospel. In fact, had Mary said no to the angel Gabriel, then Jesus would have been born through another woman. He's not going to force it upon anybody. But Mary consented with these words. She said, may it be to me as you have said. It wasn't, yeah, I'll just go along with it. No, she said, may it be to me as you have said. What was the result? Grace upon grace. Grace inside of grace. Grace because of grace. Grace, because of grace, was made manifest in her. This grace found residence in Mary's womb. When we say yes to the Holy Spirit, grace is made manifest in us. We operate in grace. Every time we say yes by your grace, God, allow your grace to flow through me, we operate in that grace. The purity of Mary's womb and the willingness of her heart simply became the immaculate environment for light and life and love and grace upon grace and grace in place of grace and grace because of grace to incubate for nine months and then enter the world as a man. At birth, the divine Jesus had been wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger that was not his own. And at death, the same divine Jesus would be wrapped once again, this time in strips of linen, and he would be laid in a tomb that was not his own. Jesus 
was with God in the beginning, and Jesus will be with God in the end. The Apostle John wrote that he was and is the preexistent one, the eternal one, the beginning and the end. He was at God's right hand when the Father said, let us make man in our own image and after our likeness. It is Jesus to which the scriptures declare was the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. That was Christ slain before the foundations of the world were laid. Slain where? In God's heart. In his own heart. Didn't take him by surprise. The one who was with God in the reshith, in the beginning. Christ, he is our beginning. He is our end. He is the beginning of our righteousness and he is the end of our sin. It has been taken away. We bear it no longer. He is the end of the old nature. He's the end of our sin problem. He is our grace upon grace. He is our grace because of grace. That's my point. I sound like a broken record, I'm sure, but he is our grace because of grace. Because God dispenses grace. That's all he has. The scriptures tell us, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The apostle John got it right when he wrote the words, All things were made by him. You were made by him. I was made by him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In John chapter 8, verse 58, we find these words. Then Jesus said to them, I love these words, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Boy, John took him back a long ways, didn't he? John wrote about that. John heard Jesus say those words. Before Abraham even existed, I am. You got that, John? Jesus took the Jewish Pharisees back 20 centuries to the patriarch Abraham, the father of many nations, a man that the Pharisees worshipped, and he declared, even before Abraham was born, I am. That's who Jesus was talking to when he released those words, the religious leaders. Did they consent to allow grace upon grace to become their fullness in that moment? No, not at all. The scriptures say they picked up stones and tried to stone him. Friends, Jesus, come on. He is our reshith. He is our beginning. He is our end. He was before Abraham. He is the vine and the choice wine of the new covenant. He is the pre-existent one that John wrote about when he declared that all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. And Jesus is the one that the apostle John wrote about as he declared to be the choice part 
and the first fruits for all of those that have fallen asleep in Christ. Jesus said these words in John chapter 17 and verse 5. He's praying this beautiful prayer. John 17 is one long prayer by Jesus. He knows he's at the end of his earthly life. And he's pouring his heart out here. And he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I'm telling you, he was there in the beginning. He was always there. The Scriptures leave no room for ambiguity. Jesus said, Father, I was with you before the world was. The grace and truth that Jesus was full of before the world was made is the same grace and truth that Jesus has given to us. It's the same grace and truth. There's not two separate graces, two separate truths. The grace that is on Jesus, the truth that is in Him, is the same things He's given us. It's a grace upon grace and a truth upon truth that glorifies us as we stand before the Father in His presence. He says, Ah, I see my Son. I see grace. I see truth. Quit thinking small of yourself. You are the choice part of God's creation. You are a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, a people of God's own possession, that you should show forth the praises of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Why? How? Because the light shined into the darkness and the light drew us right out of the darkness. Isn't that awesome? Why did God glorify us with such treasures? Why would He do that? Why would He give us grace upon grace? God had children for the same reason we have children. He wasn't looking for workers. He's got bees to do that. He wasn't looking for servants. He wasn't even looking for worshipers. He's got angels to do that. He loves worship. He loves it when we work with Him. Yes, He loves it when we walk with Him. He loves it when we learn from Him. He loves it when we listen to the unforced rhythms of grace. He loves all of that. But that's not the reason he had children. The reason he had children is the same reason you had children is because God has put inside of you an innate love to give it away, to show and demonstrate somebody else the love that he's put inside of you. That's why we had children. It's because we wanted to give our love away. And that's what God did. He didn't need us for any other reason. 
And so if he didn't create us for that purpose, then why do we have this mentality that I always got to be a, a soldier for God, you know, in the army of God? Just drop that nonsense, folks. Just rest in his love. Rest in his grace. Walk with him. Work with him. Watch how he does it. Beautiful. All that stuff will do is make you think small. It brings in the substitute teachers. It brings in the spare tires. We don't need any of that stuff. We've got grace upon grace. In John chapter 17 and verse 24, we find these words. Jesus said, he said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. Something breathtaking about that. I'm trying to put my finger on it. I'm trying to understand all this. Jesus is reflecting. He said, Father... Let them experience that kind of love. That unconditional love. That love that never asks for an apology. Never demands an apology. Help them to see that kind of love. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-2, through two, we find these words. He says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard... And what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at in touch with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. That means it took on something, right? Something that you couldn't see, now you can see. It's manifested, right? And we have seen, come on, there it is, and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Jesus came to give us eternal life. Manifested to us. Jesus was with the Father, and then he was manifested to us. Mary, the mother of Jesus, didn't cause Jesus to be born. She consented to Jesus being born. In Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26, we find these words. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor. That's grace. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? 
Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And then he said, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. And then she said these words, may your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. I've got a couple of questions for you in closing. Did the angel impregnate Mary? No. Did Joseph impregnate Mary? No. Did the rain dance of consent cause her to become pregnant? Well, it certainly prepared the way, but Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit through grace. Upon grace, the angel said, you have found favor. You have walked into favor. You have come into the revelation of favor. For out of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace in place of grace. Grace because of grace. Not only did the Apostle John write about Jesus' preexistence, but he wrote about Jesus' perfection. And these are the closing thoughts I want to leave with you. He was always there. He was at the reshit. He was at the beginning. And he will be at your end. But John wrote about his perfection to give us a hope to possess that would help us in our time of need. In John chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, my closing scriptures. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed on his name, to them gave he the right. That means the ability. It means the privilege. It refers to the power. And it refers to the perfection. He gave us all of that to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father fall of grace and truth. 
I want to show you what that word full means in closing. It comes from the Greek word pleres. Pleres. It means complete, lacking nothing, perfect. When it speaks of Christ's fullness, that's what it means, complete. Lacking nothing, perfect. This is how Jesus came to us. Jesus didn't become complete. Jesus didn't walk into perfection. Jesus wasn't 80% full of grace. He wasn't 99.99% full of grace. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to concede that if Jesus is full of grace and truth, then he's perfect. Because the scriptures tell us that. Full means perfect. Now, let's revisit the point I have tried to drive home, the point I've been making throughout this message, out of Jesus' fullness, out of his completeness, out of his perfection, out of his lacking nothing, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace in place of grace. Grace because of grace. Now if that's true, and it is, then can we make the connection can we voice the confession that we are his own possession? Jesus has given us truth upon truth, grace upon grace, and perfection upon perfection. Or another way to say it, perfection because of perfection. We are a finished work. You see, it's impossible for a perfect God to give believers an imperfect salvation. He would be given us something he just doesn't possess. It would make sense. We possess what Jesus possesses. Whether we know it, whether we believe it, we are full of grace and truth. And as much as that scripture tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men, we also are growing in the revelation of the fullness of God's grace upon grace. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the Christmas message are these. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. I was made by Him. You were made by Him. His light shined into our darkness, and we became the light of life. Jesus is not only our beginning, 
but he is also our end, okay? He will be at our side when we draw life's final breath. To all who have received him, to them who have believed on his name, to those gave he the power, the privilege, the ability, and the perfection to become sons of God, even unto them which believe on his name. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, come on, full, perfect, complete, lacking nothing, full of grace and truth, and out of his fullness, come on, out of his abundance, out of his overflow, we have all received grace upon grace, grace because of grace. Grace has always been the heart of our Father. There are no spare tires. There's no backup plan. No substitute teachers for grace. Grace cannot be earned nor demanded. Grace cannot even be fully explained. Grace must be experienced. Grace is given because of grace. And you've heard me say it a thousand times. Grace is a slow drip. The Apostle John's name translates as grace. And fitting to his name, he graciously took the time to wait to write his book that bears his name. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, yes. But the cradle without the cross, would have been an empty victory, a bridge to nowhere, crops without rain, a wedding feast without choice wine, first fruits and no resurrection of the dead, and a vine without branches. Friends, Jesus didn't come to simply fill our net full of fishes. He didn't come to demand an apology for our sinfulness. And He didn't come to put the thermostat of our holiness on the outside of our temple. We are holy, and we are perfect and complete, and this work begins on the inside and radiates out. Jesus came to fill our hearts full of His Father's glory and His Father's love. Jesus came to fill our minds full of the Father's grace and truth. Jesus came to fill our spirit full of the Father's glory and to fill our souls full of grace upon grace. Father, we praise You in Jesus' name. I thank You for Your goodness and Your grace. I thank You that as we look to Christ, and we see His finished work. We see that He's complete. We see that He's lacking nothing. And what He has, He gives to us. Jesus came to give us grace upon grace. He was the Word in the beginning. He'll be the Word at the end. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. We thank You, Father, for your goodness. 
we thank you, Father, that we don't have to do our silly little rain dances. We have all the rain that we need from the reigning power of the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us who came to show us the Father, came to show us what Jesus looks like, came to tell us that Jesus was there from the beginning of time as we know it, and He'll be there when we draw our final breath, whispering those beautiful words into our heart. Son, it's always been about grace upon grace. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 833-632-1315, or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.